pull the spare tire out. And obviously when I set it down, I can tell it's really heavy and I'll roll it and it rolls. It's out of, it's out of round. And, uh, I was about to actually cut it open and my sergeant shows up and he's like, no, 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 no. Don't cut it open. If you cut it open, there's nothing in there. We're going to have to buy him a new tire. And I'm like, dude, this is a rental car. Number one, number two, I smell the air and it smells like mustard. Okay. They don't put mustard inside the tire. So anyway, he, his, his, his uh, vicarious liability thing kicks in. So he wants to take the tire while I'm standing on the side of the road to about 300 yards down the road. There's a full service gas station. So he goes over there and he pops it open. He calls me on the radio and he says, put that son of a bitch in handcuffs. Hey guys, check out the 2023 Street Cop Conference, April 23rd through the 28th, Gaylord Convention Center. It's going to be the event of the year. Keynote speakers include Rob O'Neill, the guy who killed Bin Laden, Kyle Carpenter, the youngest living Medal of Honor recipient, Navy SEAL Jason Redmond, Fox News host Tommy Lahren, Marine Corps Special Forces and Leadership Coach Cody Alford, Sheriff Wayne Ivey, Sheriff David Clark, and Sheriff Mark Lamb. It's going to be one hell of an event. And on top of that, we have all of our instructors and additional instructors from other companies going to be at the event, giving you everything they know for you to have a successful career and get the results you want to get in the field as a police officer. On top of attending the event, you'll get face-to-face time with every instructor attending the event, and all the keynote speakers will spend time with you. We got special events all week, giveaways, nightlife. It's going to be really, really worth your time, energy, and effort. I promise you, you will not regret it for a second. To register for the conference, check out streetcop.com, click conference, and everything you need will be there on the homepage. If you are looking for a room, just click book a room. The block has been sold out at the Gaylord Opryland Convention Center. But there are many hotels nearby within a walking distance of the event. You don't want to miss out on this opportunity. We will see you there. Hey guys, welcome to Street Cop Training Podcast. I'm your host, founder and CEO of Street Cop Training. My name is Dennis Benino. I have with me today one of my oldest friends in the game. Um, and... I'm sorry to have you on sooner, young man, uh, but it is, people are familiar with him, Triple I Solutions, uh, Sean Pardaisy. He is well known in the interdiction game. Uh, I've been teaching for quite a few years. Dude, I appreciate you being here. Why don't you give everybody your two-minute background to who you are and some of the work you've done? Uh, thanks, Dennis. I appreciate you having me on. It's an honor to uh, share the screen with you. Um, yeah, I've been around for a few years. Kind of give you the two minute lowdown. Um, I was born. I was born in the states, but when I was about three months old, went overseas and lived in uh, Iran until 1987 when I came back to the U.S. Luckily, since I was born here, I was a U.S. citizen, so I didn't have to, uh, you know, smuggle through the Mexican border like most of my uh, <laughs> relatives had. But uh, nonetheless, uh, ended up having to escape. Um, because of the regime change and I was actually getting trained to be a child soldier, which anybody who was going to school would have to. Anyway, I came to the U.S., didn't know how to speak a lick of English. So I actually moved to Alabama as soon as I got here. So that was a culture shock. And uh, I know you could probably people listen to me now and they're like, well, this guy sounds like a redneck. Well, you know, I, I moved to Alabama of all places for the first year and then to Texas. So I had to kind of assimilate and learn um, the language as a local spoke it. So uh, nonetheless, got into a restaurant business, um, decided that uh, sitting behind an office wasn't a thing for me. Got into law enforcement. I got introduced to it from a neighbor of mine uh, who was a HPD officer. Got into law enforcement after about the first year, ended up going to an interdiction class and hit my first load about four days out. And that's all she wrote. Ended up uh, working a few years in Texas, Moved over to uh, Mississippi, went back to Texas, back to Mississippi, and then uh, circumstances happened that I had to leave full time and basically start teaching. So that's where we're at now. What was it like to come here, be 15 and not speak English and go to high school? You know, the first year when I was in school, uh, my dad actually sent me to school and had the teacher send home notes of what I had to do. So when I got home, I had to use the Farsi uh, English dictionary in order to uh, translate everything that I needed to do. So any reading assignments, I literally had to read them line by line and translate them with a dic- dictionary, which actually helped me because about nine months, I was pretty fluent. 
the biggest thing was was uh, kick the accent because even my dad's been here since 1968 and I can't understand what he says when he speaks in English too. So I always have to tell him to uh, explain things to me in Farsi because that's one thing I remember is being around my folks is uh, sometimes you get around my folks and you you can't understand what they're saying, you know? So <laughs> that was goal number one for me was learn how to speak English properly. So that's, it, it was a, it was pretty challenging, you know, and at the same time I went to, uh, when I started in the restaurant business, uh, a lot of the people who work in the restaurant business, as far as like cooks and bus boys, they're all Hispanic. So I had to learn English and Spanish at the same time in order to be able to communicate with my coworkers and the people who ran the uh, back end of the restaurant. So it, it was pretty challenging, but I think I did pretty good, which learning the Spanish actually helped me, you know, working uh, traffic and smugglers coming from the southwest border. It's it's almost second nature. I can speak to them in Spanish and uh, no problem. I mean, you're coming to Alabama at 15 to learn English. Did you feel like uh, kids were kind to you and accepting at that time or was it real rough? It, you know, I really didn't communicate with the kids a lot because I didn't know how to speak English. And I'll tell you one, one story. I literally got my ass whooped one time, got paddled. And uh, I don't know how it is up north, but in Alabama back in the late 80s, you know, they had corporal punishment. So um, I used to sit in the back of the class and uh, this kid hands me a note and uh, just tells me to raise my hand, you know, but by gestures. And I, I could read English. I just didn't know what I was reading. So um, he actually hands me a note, and uh, I, I believe we were in math class, and <laughs> can't remember which one it was. And, and the and I raised my hand and I read the note, and I basically told the teacher "fuck you" out loud in the class. So she sent me to the office, and corporal punishment in the states is a little bit different than the Middle East. So um, yeah, one of the challenges was me not repeating what people said. So um, I pretty much got a good ass whipping with that big ass wooden paddle, not knowing what the hell I did. Wait, so they would bring you into the principal's office and hit you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. When you would mess up uh, in the class and I'm talking, dude, I was in ninth grade and they pull me in the principal's office. And of course, I had no clue what was going on because they're trying to explain to me. I understand bits and pieces. You know, I've been here like three months total. And, you know, they're trying to explain to me, they're telling me something about bad word, but I didn't know what the word fuck meant, you know? So, because we don't have that kind of word in Farsi, we don't have it in Arabic, you know, just this the terminology that's used here. There's no equivalent in some of the foreign languages. So I, I'm like, why the hell am I getting my ass whipped, you know? But either way, learn experience. Learn not so how does to that trust work? They like tell you like stand up, bend over, and they will whack you. Uh, right. So you had to put your hand. You would kind of basically uh, sit, stand up next to the principal's desk, and put your hands on the edge, and basically stick your ass out, and they would put that paddle right on your rear end about three times. And uh, so it's fucking nuts, yeah. dude. They did it to girls too. I don't know. You know, I never checked. All I know is that from that point on, I didn't read any notes from anybody. I didn't repeat anything anybody said. Bro, that's insane <laughs> if you really think about it. Like corporal punishment? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the southern states work a little bit different. The, you know, the southern states work a little bit different than, you know, most other places. So uh, in the Middle East, corporal punishment, I mean, you get punched in the face, you get slapped around, you get thrown up around the room. That's not really a big deal, you know? So what people consider child abuse in the United States, it's it's more like a stern talking to back home. You know, over there, you 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 get really tore up. So a little bit of a difference, you know, I had to, I had to learn all this stuff. Did you experience that in Iran is getting tore up like that? It wasn't like that. What would happen in Iran if you did something wrong? Um, the principals would actually call your parents and your parents would come to the school and they would whip you with a switch, with a stick. You know, sometimes they just slap you around. One of the biggest things that they used to do over there, and I still remember the pain, is grab you by the ear and they would twist your ear and they would walk you down the hallway like the principal, the teacher. Once you would get back to the office, depending on the type of relationship that your parents had with them, sometimes they would have just allowed the principal or the teacher or whoever take care of it. And, 
you know, it was a slap in the face and yelling and, you know, it, it, it varied depending on the environment in which you lived, you know, just like here, you have your affluent areas and then you have your just uh, middle-class areas and then you have your poor areas. So it really depends. Uh, I lived in the middle East, uh, in the uh, kind of a middle-class uh, neighborhood. So the school was a little bit more middle-class or a little bit more respectful. So, but I had seen some, you know, bruises and things like that from some of the kids that went to other schools. Were your parents like down with that? Were they violent people towards you as a kid or were they a little more toned down? No, no, no. Actually, when my mom and dad came here in 68, they were both doctors. They came from upper middle class families. They were, obviously, they were both doctors and moved to San Antonio in 68. And when I was born in 72, uh, my grandpa passed, uh, was getting sick. He had cancer. And so my mom, being the eldest, was responsible for taking care of him. So she ended up leaving and taking me back with her. That's how I ended up in Iran. So, But I, I never had... I want to say maybe a couple of times my mom would, you know, grab me by the ear if I was doing something I wasn't supposed to, but it wasn't really violent or anything like that. But the culture itself, the Middle Eastern culture is, you know, everything is, you know, that machismo masculine culture. So punishment is uh, is handed down. I mean, it's old school. And your mother. She lives where now? She still lives in Iran. She lives in Esfahan. She's uh, 83 years old. So uh, I talk to her about once every couple of weeks. She's starting to kind of lose her. Uh, she's starting to get amnesia for Alzheimer's. So uh, sometimes I talk to her. She thinks I'm my dad. So she asks about me, of me. So <laughs> it's kind of one of those situations. Does she say like, hey, has, like has he gotten any taller? Tell me about him. <laughs> actually, you know, I'm the... Bro, I'm the tallest one of my parents. I'm actually 5'4". My mom is 4'11". My dad is 5'2". Wow, you did good, dude. You <laughs> I'm did the good. jolly green the giant. Yeah, yeah, I'm the jolly kid, green bro. giant. <laughs> Just tower down on them, make their life miserable, put the keys on top of the fridge. They can't go anywhere. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, dude, so where's, where's your dad live? Uh, my dad lives in Alabama. Dad, when my mom, dad, my mom, mom uh, went back, they ended up getting a divorce. I'm actually uh, writing a book now. It'll should be out next year. It's uh, it's my memoirs of growing up there and then being trained by uh, Hezbollah and the what you what we call the uh, IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corp, which we call them Sepal Pastoran. Um, so it, I'm in my memoir. I kind of detail all that out how. They ended up getting a divorce and I came back. So when, when I had left at three months old, the first time I saw my father was when I came back in 1987. He actually met me in Ankara, Turkey. Uh, what, it's kind of one of those unique situations because I was born here. So I was a U.S. citizen. But when I was three months old and my mom took me back, I, I didn't have a passport. I was kind of one of those baby on mom's passport. At the time, right before I turned 15, uh, they had the Iran-Iraq war going on. So they would pull the kids out of school at 15 years old and they would send you out to the war. So from the time you were in first grade till you, till you were 15, you were basically trained in guerrilla warfare. And, you know, you see those child soldiers marching with the bandanas on their head. That was me. I've got I've got uh, I've got so many memories. We had to go through the uh, when I had the writer down here for about a week and we had to go relive the whole scenarios again. And uh, but anyway, so when I came here. Um, so they, the they got time, you out of there because they didn't want you going to war. Is that what it was? Right, right. Ended up uh, flying to Ankara, Turkey, and then met my dad, picked up my passport, uh, went across to Amsterdam, uh, got on KLM, landed in Atlanta, Georgia. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was a hell of an experience being on a KLM airline with these tall, blonde hair, blue eyed chicks, you know, uh, of course. Everybody now, when you say tall, them. what are they about? They were about five, six. <laughs> 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 actually right, actually the, <laughs> no they were uh and i was 15 so just imagine every time one would walk by 
Because, you know, people don't realize when you live in Iran, when you live in one of those countries, it's kind of a theocratic country. You don't get to see women, especially at 15 years old. Everybody's wearing a burqa or they're wearing a chador, wearing their hijabs, you know. And so my exposure on the plane, seeing these good looking blonde headed women with blue eyes. I mean, I'm 15 years old. What do you think is going through my mind the whole time? You know, yeah. that was probably the longest seven and a half hour flight. <laughs> Yeah, it was. A, so we thinking about when you experience. got here, like you were, you were, uh, you landed in Atlanta. Like, how were you terrified of being here? Not really. I was kind of excited. I did make a mistake as soon as I landed. I ended up going to the women's bathroom uh, because I'd heard in the U.S. You know, everybody shares everything. So I, I really had to go. So I went to the bathroom and uh, came out and got my ass chewed out by my dad because he's like, "Well, I mean, there's a sign on there," and I'm like, "Yeah, but." I don't know how to read what it says, but the little caricature that they have on there, uh, that looks like a little triangle with two legs. I'm used to seeing, you know, penguin pictures. I'm sorry. I, I you know, the, the, I didn't realize it was the women's bathroom. So, you know, it, it was it was kind of shocking, you know, to drive by houses where there's big yards and you can see inside people's homes. Well, overseas is just big 12 foot walls. You don't never see inside anybody's home. And I'm thinking to myself, these people just have like their TV. I can see their TV driving down the street where they're watching a movie. And I'm like, can somebody just break the glass and go inside and get it? You know? And it's just, it's just mind blowing. So like, imagine like totally from, you know, you see images of like Afghanistan when they're inside those villages with the big tall walls walking down the alleys. That's literally the type of houses that I lived in, except ours wasn't made out of like clay and mud. You know, it was concrete and stuff like that. But to come over here where people's got green grass and people are out playing and riding bikes and it's like, wow, this is a free country, you know, even though it's mine. I've never been here. So yeah, it was, it was, it was a, it was a learning experience. So the first two years I was here, I was just like everywhere I went, you know, you can believe I remember it. the first trip I went. Yeah. I remember the first time I went to Kmart. I was like, wow, because we don't have department stores like Kmart and Walmart and Dillard's and Pallet Royal and Saks Fifth Avenue, you know, there's just little huts in the buildings as you go by. So this is something else. That's interesting, dude. So then you go into the restaurant industry. What what industry did you go into? What kind of restaurant? Uh, it was just uh, some Iranian people down in Houston owned restaurants. So I got a job as for uh, I started out just a waiter and then become a manager. And uh, it wasn't until I turned twenty one when uh, I decided I went to I went road with Houston PD's gang task force uh, when I was eighteen. So for about three years, I did a lot of ride alongs with them. And when I turned 21 and I could go to the academy, that's when I pulled the plug. So I went to the academy and dad pissed off my parents, because if you know anything about Middle Easterners, you know, you got to be either a doctor, an engineer, uh, you know, you have to have a Ph.D. in something, you know. So I decided to go into police work because what you got to understand in the U.S., for the most part, law enforcement is considered a profession in the Middle East. Law enforcement is like literally lower grade than Paul Blart, the mall cop. You know, you're like wow. bad, bad, like peasants become cops, so to say. So, yeah, it, it was kind of a, a degrading, you know, to a lot of the family for I think for about the first 20 years, my mom told everybody that I was still going to school. I was trying to get several PhDs. She never would tell them. What <laughs> <I did. laughs> so, yeah, so then was, you uh, go you go to the police academy, you come out. What was your career like early on? I was just happy to be out. I mean, you got to think I've been here six, seven years. So I'm still in the process of, you know, refining my English and, you know, culturally, you got to understand, I came from a city of about 4 million people in, in Iran, totally different culture to a small town of about 25,000 in Alabama, and then go to Houston, which is 4 million, totally different culture. And then my first police job is in a town of about 4,000. So that's when I had to start getting exposure into the difference between metro culture and uh, country culture. So, so, yeah, I started uh, I actually still learn how to two step and boot scoot and polka and wear Justin Ropers and cowboy hat. I try not to wear a lot of cowboy hats because in Texas, if I wear a cowboy hat, they always thought my name was Jose. So I, I stopped the cowboy hat wearing thing after a while. 
So, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, I understand. It was, uh, yeah. <laughs> did you still have an accent at the time when you started doing law enforcement work? I did when it came to certain pronunciations. Uh, and one thing what I did is when I was learning, obviously, I didn't learn it from an academic perspective. So when you talk about people being harped on to have degrees and stuff like that. I mean, I, I I learn, I speak five languages, none of it from any kind of academic uh, backing, you know, background. So what I try to do is, as I learn the meaning of a word, I would actually enunciate and, and listen to people say it in different ways, which actually helped me be able to pick up on it. Now, there are cer certain words where I'll still get tongue tied because of the the way it's pronounced, you know. So, but yeah, I had I had a bit of a little bit of an accent, not much. Usually, people would think that I'm from New Orleans uh, at the early on because I, I almost sounded Cajun because of certain draws and twangs because I was trying to mimic the Texas draw, but I still had some of that Alabama Southern draw and a little bit of the Persian accent. So it was kind of all running together. It was kind of weird, you know. But what, one thing I realized. If I lived in a place certain period of time, I actually picked up on the language and, and the accents uh, after a few months. So it, it works out pretty good. So you're in patrol, you're working. When do you start getting an itch for more? I guess you start doing what everybody else does, right? You're out stopping cars, writing tickets. You know, when did you get the exposure that like there's more to do out here? There's drugs, there's guns, there's contraband. When did that occur? Right. All right. So so early on, I think I'd been on just a short time. It was less than a year. I ended up getting attacked. Uh, ended up getting a concussion. So I was on light duty for three months. And during that three months, this uh, city that I worked in, you know, the chief was a friend of mine. And he told me, he said, look, we don't have nothing for you to do. Find some training to go to. So I found a couple of free interdiction classes down in Houston. Uh, when I went to the last one and I saw a seizure. It was a Border Patrol guy that was teaching it. And he showed a picture of like 6,000 pounds of weed, you know. And prior to that, I had arrested people for like a joint or a roach, you know. And I thought I was like winning the war on drugs. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I see this 6,000 pounds of weed and I'm like, holy shit, that kind of shit drives down the road. So anyway, so at that point, I'm like, yeah, I, I got to try to get something like that. You know, it's almost like, you know, I get a little hors d'oeuvre and, and being Persian, like once we put our minds on something, it's nonstop. I mean, we're going after it. So I came back and first day back to work, uh, this little town, I had to write a lot of tickets, right? So I came out, I came out of five, work five to three. I came out and like, first thing I would do is go down the south end of town, people were driving through and I would write a bunch of tickets and then I'd you know, try to find criminals, you know, but usually at that time, prior to working the highway was going in the hood, you know, I was always in the hood, you know, just finding chases to get into, you know, of course, I was younger. Now, if I try to do that, I'll pull a muscle be in the ER before long. So, uh, but, <laughs> but so I actually went down to write a ticket, I checked this guy doing 71 and a 55. And I stop him and it's a rental car out of Oklahoma. And I start asking him, you know, where are you coming from? Houston, where you headed to? Oklahoma City. What's going on in Houston? I uh, went down to see a girl. She wasn't there. I'm headed back or something, something like Ooh. that. Yeah. And uh, obviously, I knew he was on the wrong road. So I asked him to consent search the car. He gives me consent. I get five kilos of coke out of a spare tire. And wow. dude, I was done. I was done. As soon as I got that five kilos of coke, and I'm like, I don't care if somebody's lawn chair gets stolen. I don't care if they put their keys in their cars and they went to sleep and their shit got stolen. That's their problem. I just want to find drugs. That's all I wanted to do, which I had a pretty good chief, too. So he was like, look, you know, there's three of you guys working as long as it's not busy. Get out there on the highway and I hammer down. So that's what got me started in it. And that's what led me to go to several different agencies. And, and I hear you always talk about, you know, you know, you got to go where, you know, you can't always think about the money. It's, you know, how how are you enjoying life? You know, uh, me and you have the same type of, uh, uh, I guess, outlook on life is if you're not enjoying what you're doing, you know, yeah, you might make a lot of money, but you're going to live a live miserable life. So that itself kind of catapulted me into going out to East Texas, uh, which was a whole different ball game. I tell you what, that's where I first realized being Middle Eastern, 
is problematic in some of the places down here. So uh, I ended up in East Texas. I ended up on a governor's task force for a couple of years till they shut them down. And then I moved to Mississippi. So got a back and forth, depending on, you know, who was offering the best money and equipment. And that's what got me started. I haven't worked patrol since 1998. So if I was to go to somebody's house to take a theft call, I, I would have no clue what the hell is going on. You know, I, I would be like less experienced with that than a rookie just coming out of the academy with a year on, you know. So uh, because I, I never dealt with that. I, I dealt with drugs and smuggling and things like that. So, I mean, that was that was it. That was it for me. I didn't want to look back. How did you know to look in that spare tire? Like what made you go into that spare tire? It's not something typical a rookie would do on their first drug bus and find five kilos of coke. I mean, maybe you had some inkling that something was wrong and your intuition served you right. The story didn't make sense. This is pretty simple stuff. Again, once you understand the concept of it, it's simple stuff. But yeah, what makes you what made you go into the spare tire? So you know how you talk about when somebody has something in the car and you ask them about it and they turn around and look back at the car? You know, I've seen right. the videos you put out and I and I and I teach the same exact thing because that's the subconscious basically telling you it's there. So when I asked him about drugs, he turns around and looks right at the trunk, right? And now this is a rental Lincoln Town car. So I'm driving a uh this was a 1989 Caprice, you know, those box ones that have on chips, you know, the TV oh, wow, show chips. Yeah, yeah it's old school. So, uh, but there's some of the guys that have Crown Vicks and, you know, those Crown Vicks have that deep trunk and then it comes out, there's a shelf yeah. and that spare yeah. tire sits on the shelf. So when I ask him to search, you know, I open the trunk and I see the spare tire, but on a Lincoln, it has a carpet cover over it. It's kind of for, you know, uh, right. for, I remember for this. looks. Yeah. I pull the carpet cover up and shit you not, there's a Honda Accord tire as a spare on a Lincoln rental, right? And it's not even a brand new one. It is a full-size Honda Accord tire, and it's got all the grease and shit from the road grime, right? Fingerprints all over it, and I'm like, yeah, that shit don't look right. So listen to this. So you know I'm short, right? So I have to reach into the trunk to try to grab that thing out. So I unscrew it and I go to reach in and I literally, it's so heavy and I'm so short that I high center and fall into the trunk with the tire. Oh. <laughs> and the guy, the guy I stopped, he's probably 56 years old. He's laughing. He's like, are you all right? And I'm like, yeah, man. So I'll pull the, pull the spare tire out. And obviously when I set it down, I can tell it's really heavy. And I'll roll it and it rolls. It's out of it's out of round. And uh, I was about to actually cut it open. And my sergeant shows up and he's like, no, 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 no. Don't cut it open. If you cut it open, there's nothing in there. We're going to have to buy him a new tire. And I'm like, dude, this is a rental car. Number one. Number two, I smell the air and it smells like mustard. OK, they don't put mustard inside the tire. So anyway. He, his 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 uh, vicarious liability thing kicks in. So he wants to take the tire while I'm standing on the side of the road to about 300 yards down the road. There's a full service gas station. So he goes over there and he pops it open. He calls me on the radio and he says, put that son of a bitch in handcuffs. He literally says that over the radio. <laughs> so anyway, I put the dude in handcuffs. We ended up, you know, it's funny. That was my first load ever, like a smuggling load. And it's the one that got me started with the controlled deliveries because we actually got him to cooperate and did a controlled delivery up in Oklahoma City and ended up taking out five or six other people up there in their, in their house and seized a bunch of money. So you imagine I've been on not even a year and I hit five kilos of coke and I still hold a record in that county. Right. And this was back in 1995. Hey guys, if you're enjoying the Street Cop Podcast, do us a favor and go with, give us a review on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you're listening to us. Tell a friend. We don't charge anything for the episodes. We appreciate your support. Check us out on any social platform by putting into the search bar, Street Cop Training. Give us a follow. We have a lot of free content coming out every single day that you might not catch here on the podcast, and it's important for you to be able to do your job more professionally, and we also entertain you as well. So you can imagine the exposure that I got right out of the academy, right? So it was almost like somebody shot me up with a freaking spoonful of freaking crack cocaine, you know, and I've been fiending ever since. So, I mean, it's literally like that's what started the whole thing. And just the excitement that I got from that, I was like, you know what? I, I don't want to do nothing else. I'm done. I'm done. I just want to work interdiction. And that's what it was. I mean, it was, it was pretty exciting. I still kind of get a little tickled when I think about that. That's a big first pop, you know, it's a it big is. deal. 
Yeah. Yeah, because prior to 99.9% of cops, yeah, 99.9% of cops will never experience that. Right, right. It, it just happened. I got lucky. I was at the right place at the right time. And uh, I mean, it worked out. It worked out pretty good for me. And, you know, it set the, set the hook for me to be, a, I guess you would say, a addict to interdiction. So that's that's where 100% of my attention went to interdiction, interdiction, interdiction. Of course, you know, we you talk about training. I talk about training. You know, this stuff is not something you learn overnight. You know, I look back some of the videos from like mid 2000s that I've made. I'm like, good God, I fucked up royally on those. I'm glad I didn't go to court. <laughs> you know, I just happened yeah. to work in counties and I just happened to work in counties and had good prosecutors where they were able to at least, you know, do a plea, plead out with something decent, you know. So, but, you know, learning experience. I think that's how we grow. We just got to go out and make mistakes and it's a learning experience. I mean, I've been there too, dude. I've seen things two years later when it shows up in court and I'm like, oh, oh, I was reading a lot of case law. Like, you know, if I was a defense attorney, I would argue this. It, and I would, I told my partner and I forget to tell him, like, if they argue this, we're done. Like, cause we screwed up, but nobody knows the law. It's wild. Right. So like his defense attorneys came in and I'm like, this is an easy kill if if, if they wanted. And I didn't even tell our prosecutor. I didn't say to, cause I didn't want her revealing it, dude. Thank God it was us. We had a suppression hearing and I'm like, oh my God. Right. But it, the suppression hearing ended up being like the, they were arguing that the consent procedure wasn't voluntary. And it actually was because my partner was very, very good at building rapport and conversation. So we showed the court in a very liberal court system here in that courtroom in the front of a Democratic judge, uh, very liberal, very Democratic, very Democratic county, that this woman was under no duress, no coercion. It was a kind conversation. She, she was hesitant to sign it. We didn't force her to do it. And we just kept giving her options. Like, you don't have to sign it, uh, but we'll call a canine unit if that's the case. We have enough. Uh, we actually had PC at the time, but in New Jersey, we did not have the automobile exception. And my partner, I did not how to know how to get a warrant. We didn't know what to do. We just got consent from people all the time. And this is one of those first times where somebody was like, like, what do we do now? Right. Like now, like nobody's ever taught us how to get a warrant for a car. And it's actually a big thing that's on my mind right now is just making a, how to get a warrant video or how to type a warrant video. And maybe it's a 20 minute video and that empowers cops so much to be able to do so much more than they can do right now. And off the topic of what we're discussing, I'm going to go back to you. In my second case law course that I wrote about homes and the exigencies and warrant requirements around entering to homes for law enforcement, most of the stuff that I read when it comes to why we had things suppressed, why cops did this, because they don't know how to get a search warrant. They don't realize that at this point, you're going to need a warrant to go into the house. doesn't mean you can't go in. You just got to stop and get authorization to go in. And they don't know what to do, so they just do something, and typically it's the wrong decision. And the fact matters, it's just wild to me, again, that people go to an academy for four to six months and not one person spends three hours teaching them how to get a warrant. 95% of cops have no idea how to get a warrant, right? And it, and you have to know how to get warrants. Like, it's it's so significant. You have to know how to get warrants in a lot of situations. But back to you. So you hit that first seizure, and um, it's five kilos. What, what's, like, the, what's the next few years look like? How much more successful were you? What were you out doing? Tell me about that shit. So you remember, I was working just patrol. You know, I didn't get into a full-time interdiction until the first half of 2000s, you know, 2001, 2002. So the, you know, I moved from one agency to the other just to be able to have better equipment, you know, more money. Obviously, when I was working in that city, I was making, I believe it was $8.71 an hour or $9.71 an hour so. You know, if the next agency was paying 12, that was a big heck of a jump, you know. So I ended up going uh, to some other agencies, eventually ended up in East Texas so I could work US 59. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with where US 59 is. I'm sure you've seen the videos where uh, Daryl Lunsford gets jumped by the street smugglers and they take his gun yes. and shoot him in the neck. OK, yep. that's US 59. And then uh it's also about 30 miles north of that is where Michelle, uh, as a matter of fact, I worked with her. She's a friend of mine. She's actually in your group and my group. 
Uh, that's the one where Michelle. the blonde. Yeah. Michelle. I know yeah, Michelle. She yeah, got Michelle. beat up. Yeah. So, so I wanted to work on that road. That's how I ended up in East Texas. And from there on, I was at the task force until they abolished the task forces. So it's really seeking that higher um, uh, p- position, I guess, um, putting myself in situations where I would actually, you know, move to a place, uh, uproot and move to a place just to be able to work the road, you know, a specific road. Eventually, obviously, ended up in Mississippi. So uh, the one thing about the southern states, when you're working interdiction, I know up north, uh, you know, you guys have unions and things like that. Down here, for the most part, law enforcement is not looked at as a a professional job. It's a semi-professional job. It's more, it's in the same level as like the labor market, like if you're working in the oil field or you know, you're a contractor or you're installing, you know, <laughs> freaking cable, you know, so benefits aren't really that good. So you just kind of have to gauge, you know, how long can I go work here? And then, you know, what is that going to help me to get to the next level? Right. Because there's no longevity for the most place, unless you work for like a Houston police department or, you know, state police or something like that, that has long term um, uh, things in place. You're basically, I mean, law enforcement is just a job down here. It's just a job with benefits. That's all it is, you know. So moving around is not really that big of a deal down here, you know. So which kind of helped me because I was able to position myself in certain areas. And especially the more I worked interdiction, the more I networked and got to know people. And that's how I ended up in Mississippi. Do you think that some of the things you said have changed? I mean, now we're seeing Texas law enforcement. Uh, we're talking about Texas there. We can talk about moving around a lot or just the South in general. Uh, uh, which one was it? The South in general, Texas is is a little bit um, different. It depends on what part of Texas. If you're out in West Texas or if you're out in East Texas, which is more rural areas, then moving around every couple of years is not really that bad. But when you get around metropolitan areas, that's where they put a lot of emphasis on your tenure. You know, so uh, there's an old saying, uh, some of the old school guys would tell you that in Texas, if you've moved around, let's say you work 15 years and you've been at three different agencies, they call you unreliable. It's almost like they look at it like you have a credit history. You know, they, they, they say it's unstable because they're moving around because they look at it from the old school uh, culture is you should be happy with what you got and you stay over there and you work towards that retirement. It doesn't matter if the retirement is shit or not. It's just you just stay there because they're, they're more of a steadfast personality, you know, but for somebody like me or somebody who's seeking to constantly go to the next level, I mean, there's limitations with some of these agencies, you know, the first agency I work for, I mean, you're talking about a town of like 4,000 people. I mean, what's what's the growth rate, you know? If I was there right now, I would be making fifty-one thousand a year. That's what they pay, right? You know, I've actually so, run into people from the tip when I do classes in Texas, and some of them are like, "Yeah, we make almost nothing." Um, but I, you know, you see now that it seems like Texas and Florida, and uh, some Arizona, I'll also give some some credit to. They seem to be getting up to speed with some of the better paying states. Um, you have Florida agencies paying six-figure salaries. You got a lot of Texas agencies now paying six-figure salaries in five years. Uh, they're actually significantly more competitive than even New Jersey, which we're national that we have to be the highest-paid cops in the country. There's no question about it. But um, you know what people don't take into account when you're looking at living in Texas or Florida is what the take-home net is, where it's it's might even be better than what cops are doing here in New Jersey. And then you could factor in cost of living, although cost of living is an interesting thing that's changing. It's not as different as it once was uh, just because of the internet and and proximity to big cities and the influx of people moving from these Northern states to Southern states because of the internet. The internet is the one key variable of why people don't have to be in an office anymore, can switch, have satellite offices, that was the the number one major denominator on on why people would stay, because I have seen some some significant salary hikes. I see a lot of people will post it in our group about like, hey, come work in this place. We make one hundred and seven thousand in five years as a patrolman. We'll start you at eighty one. 
And they're actually very smart because you're attracting some of the better cops to come work for you when you pay high salaries. You get what you pay for, right? Let's face facts. You're not going to take a guy or a girl making 79 and, and offer them 38 and they're en route. Not happening. The one thing about Texas, the, what, what you're seeing a change in the last 10 years is all the old school people who were running the departments. <clears throat> Texas had a very, very deep-rooted culture into you have to earn this position. You have to earn it. I remember when Texas DPS, back in the 90s when they were hiring, they would have 140 slots and they would have 18,000 people apply, right? And at the time in the academy, they only paid 24,000. And even at that, people would risk taking a pay cut to go to that position, but they would have to apply four, five, six times in order to get it because the upper echelon would look at it as like, how bad do you want it? If you want it that bad, even though you may score number three in the whole state, you're still not going to get it because you haven't showed us how bad you want it. Well, you know what? Those folks are long gone because now with society changing and even the culture and you know, just dynamics of how everything works has changed. They've started realizing, hey, we're, we're if you want quality people, you're going to have to pay, you know. And yeah, it's it's gone up significantly. But the good thing about Texas and uh, and Florida is you don't have no state income tax. So remember when I said I moved from Texas to Mississippi, right? When I left Texas in 2005 as a task force agent, I was probably one of the highest in East Texas. I was making 38000 a year. That was my goal. Wow. wow. So I moved to Mississippi and with overtime and canine pay and everything, I was making like 75. But you know wow. how much the difference my check was? I brought home literally 290 bucks a month more because you had to add the state income tax plus the way the Mississippi retirement work. You put in like almost an ungodly amount, like 12% of your salary or 11.9%. And the entity you work for only puts 1.1% in, while in Texas, you put in seven and they double or triple. So you're putting in less into retirement. You have no state income tax. So even when I went back to Texas for three years, I literally took a 22000 a year pay cut. My paycheck went down 30 bucks every two weeks. Wow. Wow. That's the difference between. So so you see where if Texas is paying 100000 a year. They would probably bring home about the same thing as somebody making 160 up in Jersey, you know. Plus, cost oh, yeah. of living is a little that. bit less, you know. Cost of living is a little bit less because, um, you know, for a house that you could buy for a million dollars up in Jersey, you can buy the same house in Texas for about 400. Well, also, you got to keep this in mind that New Jersey police officers, uh, typically pay back, and I'm just a ballpark figure, probably a little bit more than this, about 40 percent. Uh, out of their salaries. So if you make it 100000 a cop here, which is, a, to be honest with you, on the lower end of salaries for law enforcement in New Jersey patrol officer, um, you know, you're, you're probably taking home 60000 bucks a year. And in a yeah. state, uh, I mean, that's not a lot here, man. I mean, that's, you couldn't raise a family on that here. Uh, and if you did, right. boy, you'd have to be very frugal and very thoughtful and You'd have to get crafty and be, that's, that's not a lot of money. You're talking about 4000 bucks a month, uh, actually a little more than five. 5,000 bucks a month for six, you know, so you got to, you got to make it work for 5,000 bucks a month. People don't realize rent on a two bedroom, one bath place here is 21, 22, 2300 a month. That's just rent alone. You know, so you start talking, you start factoring other things. It's, it's, you got to, you got to make those bucks. You got to make that money. So that's interesting. So you go on 2005. When did you start teaching? So I actually started teaching right in 2005 for another company. And I got invited to go teach for them. I did that for about four years. And then I started my own company in 2010. You know, you got to think, I've I've been married several times. You know, uh, my last wife passed away back in 2018. So the my wife at the time. I'll never forget that. I'll she, never forget that. You know, it's like, uh, that was, that has was, burned in my memory forever. Do I think about it all? You know, crazy, Sean? I think about it a lot. I didn't realize how long we were friends. We've been friends quite yeah. a while now. I didn't yeah. know that I, because I'm trying to forget you as much as I can. <laughs> it's not hard. You just look over my head. I'm not even there. <laughs> but yes, that was, I, I don't even want to bring that up, but that was a, I think about it all the time. The lady I was married to at the time, she was actually Arab. She was Palestinian. And again, culture kicks in. Uh, the one thing when you marry your own people, there's a difference between what 
the Western culture is expecting and what the Middle Eastern culture is expecting. So uh, in order for, you know, providing, I ended up having to teach, you know, that became a full-time job because you got to think, you know, uh, living down here, if you want to have a new car, if you want to have a decent new car, unless you want to get a Kia Sorento or something like that, you know, you want to have something like a Honda Pilot or, you know, nothing extravagant, just something normal. Uh, you're not able to pay that with the salaries that are paying down here. So not with a house payment and two car payments and insurance. So I ended up having to teach as a supplemental kind of thing. And, you know, it was kind of rough at the beginning because going from being in what you would consider a labor market into an actual business, you know, and, and trying to separate business decisions versus, uh, uh, you know, how you would make a decision if you're dealing with somebody else. And I think that's one of the biggest things is, you know, especially for for somebody who works full time uh, in law enforcement and then they try to run a training company is. A lot of people don't understand you have to separate the two, the difference between running a business and, and, and you know, just helping out when it comes to cases and things like that. So, yeah, so I started teaching for myself in 2010 and just kind of slowly. And of course, when when my wife passed away, uh, I had Cameron, he was two and a half. So I ended up having to make a decision because I couldn't stay. I couldn't stay in Mississippi. I tried to stay there for about two years. Couldn't get nobody to help me out long term. You know, I have a kid, no family to help. So it was one of those deals where it's like, okay, well, you know, I got to take care of family. That's what becomes first. So that's when I decided to just leave law enforcement. And there were some issues there with, uh, you know, and I know this is one of those things where, you know, you're not supposed to say anything when you're down south, but some of the people, not everybody, but some of the people found out that uh, I'm not uh, share the same faith. It became very, very known that you're not welcome here. So I'm talking like, you know, uh, you know, when you're a Muslim and you're down here and your wife was a white girl who's got blonde hair, blue eyes, she's a Muslim too. And then they don't realize till her headstone hits the ground that she was a Muslim. Like it, 95% of the people, they didn't care. But there were those small elements because I had to put cameras up at her grave and things like that because they were uh, going out there and desecrating her. You know, Cameron used to leave toys on the on the, on the the grave and we would go out there for him about three, four days a week. And they had smashed up the toys, tore up the flowers, broke the lights. And it was her grave was the only one that was being uh, messed with. <clears throat> so it's one of those deals where it's kind of like, OK, I got you. It's, it's time to bounce. So it took me about two years to get out of there. And uh, I still got a camera out there and I moved out of there June 10th of 2020. And not a single person has messed with her grave since. So, you know, like I said, it's it's not everybody that was there but there were those small factions of people who were a couple of them were within the police department that uh that really showed their colors so yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy man it's crazy but it is what it is you know what kind of history do you have on the highways and seizures like what are some of give us a few examples of like kind of the work that you were doing on the roadways what what size seizures? Like, tell me about some of that stuff. So obviously the first one was the five kilos. When I started working full-time interdiction in the early 2000s, I worked on US 59. And that's a road that comes from Laredo and goes up north. So anything that comes out of Laredo, Houston, McAllen, you know, any port of, you know, pretty much South Texas, would, if it's going to Chicago, Detroit, uh, you know, Nashville, all those areas, or New Jersey, uh, it would come right through there. So as I'm learning, you know, I go from, you know, and I, and I have to be honest, like when I first started, I was, I was, I, I call it, I, I was, I was looking for gangbangers. So when I saw two dudes in a rental car come by, you know, back then it was like the Impalas and stuff like that. I'd be like excited until I realized, yeah, there's too many fights and car chases. So I need to kind of go up to a little bit of a higher level there. But now I was, I was, I started hitting, you know, 20 keys of Coke compartments going to like Chicago, but you have to understand the dynamics at the time. Smugglers didn't have all these 
what you would consider uh, staging areas. They didn't have these distribution hubs like they have Atlanta. You would have a load of like 50 keys going straight from McAllen, Texas to to uh, to Detroit, right? Uh, they didn't have Birmingham. They didn't have New Orleans. They didn't have Atlanta. They didn't have Nashville. Those people were either delivering from the border straight to the to the uh, buyers, or the buyers were driving down all the way to go pick up the loads themselves. So, when I started focusing on that longer distance travel, that's when I started hitting those bigger loads. So, if I would stop a guy coming out of Detroit, it was nothing to get three, four hundred thousand dollars cash because they were going down to pick up like you know twenty keys of coke. So, the biggest uh, weed load that I personally got, you know, I've, I've helped a lot of people, you know, riding with them or working with partners. The biggest weed load I got was 1800 pounds. I think, uh, now I've been with other guys where we hit like 2,800 pounds. The biggest cash load was 1.2 million. That was in Mississippi. So, but there's been so many where, you know, it's almost like you build a tolerance level to it. You know, I, I would get a load and it'd be a nice compartment and pull out all these bundles and the narcs would be out or the, you know, supervisor would come out, chief would come out and be like, holy shit, that's a half a million dollars. And I'm like, yeah, but that's really nothing. Because once you've got 1.2 million and you've felt that excitement, everything below that is kind of like, yeah, okay. It's not as exciting. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. So yeah, I call it. I get it. It's got a like tolerance level, you know, your tolerance level. Now, if I go out and hit $2 million, then I'll probably get excited again because now I broke my own record, you know? So it's been a, it's been a few. I mean, I've I've uh, I, what I don't like to do is uh, talk about like everything that I've seized because one thing I do realize in the interdiction community is here recently in the last ten years there's been a lot of emphasis on status and people competing with each other's statuses, and I've noticed that when I did tell people what I got. There was always somebody who did it better, who got something better, and it always created animosity. So what I decided to do is like, you know what, if I don't just throw it out there, then they don't have nothing to try to compare to and it doesn't cause animosity. So I just leave it alone, you know, but everybody who comes to my class, they see, you know, depending on which videos I show, they'll, they'll, they'll see what's, what's happened over the years. I mean, tell me about the class. So what do people learn in the class, the classes? What are some of the results you've gotten back from the classes? So, so with my class, obviously, I I started debriefing. So I have to go back to when I started working uh, interdiction back full time when we were on the task force. We were actually narcotics agents that were working the task force. So if I made a case, you were talking about search warrants and all that other stuff. When you're working at a, a task force, especially in Texas, when we made a case, we had to do all the work ourselves, right? So we had to do our own drawing the warrants, getting the phones dumped, whatever we had to do. You know, if we have to subpoena their bank records, everything, we had to do it ourselves. You know, the, the other narcs would come out and help, but we were the actual case agent. So I spent a lot of time debriefing smugglers. And what I wanted to know is how is it that you guys operate? It's almost like get the blueprint of their entire operation. So over the years, when I've you know debriefed between mine and other guys that I've worked with over 600 smugglers, I started developing this pattern of you know what would be equate to clandestine activity, right? And countermeasures that are put in place and how they prepare themselves and some of the steps they take in order to, you know, create that parallel life, you know, especially for someone who is an actual smuggler, not the entire organization, because obviously they have their uh, countermeasures in place, but the smuggler who's driving, what type of countermeasures do they deploy? And how do I elicit that information? And so it's almost like creation of a model. That's what I call a trade craft. So if I understand the trade craft, then I can formulate my questions to get the subconscious to actually reveal the truth. Because that way I can do the evaluation a whole lot faster, right? So I can spend some time. Okay, what type of smuggler am I? First of all, am I dealing with a smuggler? You know, the name of the class is Smugglers Inc., right? I had the regular version and now it's the 2.0. Even though a lot of people who teach interdiction teach criminal interdiction, I focus on narrowing down the path to the smuggler only because down here, especially in the Southwest border and the, and the Southeast, when somebody works interdiction, they're not trying to find somebody who's smuggling bootleg DVDs, 
right? They're not trying to find somebody who's involved in identity theft. They're literally looking for smugglers. So what I did is come up with these uh, trade craft that only applies to smugglers. So therefore, when I'm evaluating, am I about to search this car and find some kitty porn? Or am I about to search this car and find some stolen credit cards, right? What I wanted to know is if I want to search a car, unless it's something extravagant like a murder or, you know, something, you know, national security type of thing, I designed a class to where you understand the trade craft. So you have a model to go by. So essentially, you know, it's, it's really complex, but when somebody sits in a class, they'll understand where I'm going with it because it is understanding the dynamics and the blueprint of how these operations work. So, which in essence helps somebody be able to testify to court in court as to why they were suspicious. So one of my biggest things that I talk about is <clears throat> In order, excuse me, uh, in order to establish uh, reasonable suspicion in court, if I can establish the fact that there's secret activity afoot, not necessarily criminal, but secret activity by default, every human being who's faced with something secret is already suspicious, right? So if I can establish there's some sort of secrecy apparent here, there's some kind of secrecy going on. I'm already halfway there to establish legionable suspicion. Now, all the physical characteristics and the behavioral elements, those would be kind of like icing on the cake. So that's where I go back to, you know, emphasizing on the tradecraft part of it itself. So essentially, that's what the class is, is honing in the tradecraft and understanding smugglers. What kind of results have you seen coming out of the class? What people called you and told you what they've gotten out of it? Oh, yeah. But you know, I probably get maybe 10 to 15 text messages, um, you know, a, a week. You know, I, my phone blows up all the time. You know, people sending me pictures. Holy shit, man. I, I just finished your class last week. It's my third day at work. And I stopped this dude. And holy shit, it was just like you said in the class. Everything is there. And, and, and you know, it's kind of it's to me, it's kind of like, OK, good. You know. I went over there and I shared what I learned with these guys, you know, kind of different perspective, you know, and, and, you know, guys picked it up and it worked for them, you know, and, and to be honest, not everybody's cut out to work interdiction because, you know, I, I get thousands of people that come to classes every year. And I would say probably 10% would be able to go apply it because it does require a certain level of intellectual capability because there is a lot to process. You know, this is not like a, and I always compare it to like SFST, right? When you go to an SFST class, there's a set of factors that you're looking at. There's a set of uh, things that you're looking for indicators. And if they're there, you got, you got a drunk, right? With interdiction, there's a lot of evaluation that takes place. And a lot of it has to do with how do you interact with people? You know, I can literally... I, if I just focus on deception alone, I can make somebody be deceptive just by, you know, giving a certain facial feature when they answer the question and then trigger some kind of response from them. So, you know, I get a lot of good feedback, right? Uh, I think the only time I get bad feedback is when I do a class in like a very, very rural area where there's like a church next door. And uh, it's usually I cuss too much, but mm. you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, but I start the class by telling everybody we're not at the seminary. Nobody's trying to be a bishop here. So we're cops. If you can't stand hearing the word shit or fuck, then it's probably not a job for you. So, but that's about it. I, you know, I don't ever, you know, I, I don't ever get anything um, bad, you know. Uh, so, but pretty, pretty good, uh, pretty good response. Hey, so you also wrote a book. So tell us about that book a little bit, where people can find it. And then we'll talk about where people can find you. The first book that I wrote with my partners was back in 2014, 2015, is Evading Honesty. Then that just focuses on, uh, you know, rapid behavioral analysis, detecting deception kind of thing. And uh, both of them are on Amazon. Uh, uh, you can get them on audiobook as well. The Evading Honesty uh, uh, is, is on Amazon, on Audible, iTunes, or whatever you call it, Apple Music now. The second book is actually Smuggler's Inc., and I actually wrote that book a year after my wife passed away. So uh, I actually did the audio book of it myself. And it's really hinges on understanding, you know, the bigger picture of smuggling, you know, some of the tradecraft stuff. Obviously, 
I can't write a book with my entire lesson plan because then it's out for the world to know, you know, so it's a bunch of stories. And really the main story is about this special operations guy that I stopped. He was a Naval special warfare and uh, he had a load and he'd been, uh, he'd been running uh, loads for several years and he'd been stopped. I was the eighth interdiction guy over the five year period that had stopped him. Every time he was loaded, I was the only one who searched him because he had such a great cover. He had his clandestine activity, you know, tightened up. He, he even had orders where he was doing a uh, recruiting mission down in New Orleans. And he had somebody on payroll where he was paying them to make his travel orders for him. And it was pretty complex. And uh, that book, I did the audio book myself. And uh, the audiobook itself, I brought him in in the last part, which is not in the regular book, where me and him actually sit down in my studio and had a back and forth about the whole stop. So I have the former smuggler on the actual audiobook is in part three. Um, but that's it. And that's again, it's on Amazon and, you know, Audible and all that other stuff. What did that's, these what did he have in the car? Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's one hundred ninety thousand. And as a matter of fact, he was one of the uh, he was one of the highest rated uh, independent smugglers. You know, when I teach the class, I talk about the t- tier levels. He was what you consider an independent contractor. Kind of, I equate him to the movie Transporter. You ever watch the Transporter movies where he's just an independent guy and he gets hired by different groups to sp- perform a specific uh, job? So that's what he did. He had one hundred ninety thousand. He had made 254 trips, I believe 18 flights. Just on the 18 flights, he'd carried $28 million in cash. In the 254 trips, he said he'd probably carried over three, $400 million in cash. That's not counting the dope that he was running the other direction. What do you think he made over the course of his criminal career? He uh, was getting money paid. Was. He was getting paid $15,000 a run, and it would take him two days. And he was making five runs a week for eight years. Yeah, he actually, he bought a house in Puerto Vallarta on the beach. So, uh, yeah, he, uh, yeah, he's, he's probably, when people ask me about like, what are you? What are your some of your memorable seizures? He's going to be one. And then there's another guy that I got back in 2019. I call him Jabba the Hutt. Sometimes you hear me refer to Jabba the Hutt. It's a big fat dude that was sitting in the front seat of my car. My poor shocks on my Tahoe. Once he sat in, my car went, turned sideways. But anyway, and he was actually pretty good. He was an independent contractor. He worked for the Gulf Cartel and he had, uh, 106,000 in floor compartments. And he had an LLC set up. He had Dunn's numbers. He had EIN numbers. He had, he was talking about GSA per diem, all kinds of stuff. But, uh, and a lot of people who've been to the class always enjoyed that video because I call him Jabba the Hutt. He looks literally like Jabba the Hutt. And uh, he ended up, uh, that was another one because he had such a complex tradecraft in place where, I mean, he'd been running for about 12 years, never been stopped before. As a matter of fact, the night that I stopped him, there was about 14 other guys ahead of me. And uh, two of them had pulled out, ran his tag and never stopped him. So uh, anyway, it's pretty good. All right. So dude, where can they find your classes and your social media handles and the group and all that shit? Okay, so uh, the website is myletraining.com. I actually had a new website roll out Friday. Thanks to you. (laughs) <laughs> no, and thanks to uh, me. You just, I just connected. Anthony, Anthony built your website. He did, dude. He did an awesome job, man. That dude, yeah, he's uh, a good guy. That dude, he's a good yeah, guy. Yeah, it's, yeah. So it's everything is going to myletraining.com. Uh, I also have the uh, on-demand versions, which is uh, it, it all. Everything can be uh, accessed through myletraining.com. Even the links to the books for the Amazon and things like that. And now on social media, I have uh, Captain Savvy Chic, Sean Pardesi. That's my Facebook. Um, Obviously, I have my group, the Triple I Solutions by Sean Pardesi. And then on uh, Instagram is uh, Captain Savvy Chic. So, uh, you know, I try to uh, I'm still trying to learn Instagram. You know, I I, I, I tried that TikTok thingy. Yeah, I, I just can't figure it out. You know, I'm, I'm kind of old, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, but yeah, I, you know, I hell, anybody, you can just Google my name, Sean Pardesi, and all of it's going to pop up on the main Google search. But uh, 
Yeah, everything's there. The new website is Maya Lee Training. So if anybody wants to go to any classes or they want to host one, obviously you just go on there and send a message and we'll get it set up. You were a wonderful podcast guest today. And uh, I'm tremendously fond of you as a human being. And I'm glad I've been friends with you for as long as I have. And I am sorry that I didn't think about putting you on the podcast any sooner because I just, it came to I'm like, oh, fuck, I have a Pardesi on here. I thought we did it already. <laughs> But I didn't. Uh, but again, the podcast has only been out. Oh, Frankie, we haven't been out even two years yet. Yeah, not even. Today, we're number 86 in Apple iTunes today. So we're moving up. Went from 92, we're number 86 in the world in the education space. Uh, but unfortunately, every day it ranks. But we're going to we're gonna try to get in, into the top 50 and stay there. That's what I'm trying nice. to do. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And you can do it, do too. It. If anybody can do it, it's Dennis. Uh, I'm just trying, dude. I'm just... I'm just committed and I'm going to try to, uh, you know, hammer down a lot of this stuff and put a lot of content out and make sure it's better. And boy, you weren't a disappointment at all. And I appreciate you being here and everybody go take Sean Pardesi's training. Everybody always talks real highly of it. And he's a great guy and uh, highly recommended from the street cop company brand. And Sean's one of us. He's spoke at our conference last year and he's friends with pretty much everybody here. So even you know, he's, he's just our family, which is great. And uh, appreciate you, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Dennis. And I'll see you at the conference coming up in a few Are you months. Coming? Oh, heck yeah, I'm coming. All right. Good, good deal. So I'll see you All there. Right, guys. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Till next time. We'll have Pardaisy yeah. back again in the future. Guys, if you're in an area where you're trying to get to our classes, but we're not close to you, fret not. We actually have on-demand training at streetcop.com. You can take that course online right now, and then you could attend that training in the future at no additional cost. You can redeem your voucher, so you get two for the price of one. We don't want to deny you the ability to take this training now, especially knowing that it can keep you safe at a very minimum, putting bad guys in jail where they belong, and at the maximum, going home to your family. Check out streetcop.com for that offer.